Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, episode 35, Into Gaul. Last time, we covered the build-up to the Second Punic War, flowing from the siege of Roman-allied Saguntum to Rome's theatrical declaration of war in the Carthaginian Senate. Today, we will cover the opening moves of both sides to meet the coming struggle. However dramatic the scene in the Carthaginian Senate might have been, its immediate result was anticlimactic. Winter still made travel hazardous, and until it let up, Rome could not make any moves against Carthage and vice versa. Indeed, it would take time for Hannibal, wintering in New Carthage, to even hear news of Rome's declaration of war. Yet Hannibal surely knew that the Romans were likely to take up his bold challenge to their demands regarding Saguntum, and he prepared accordingly. Over the winter of 219 to 218 BC, he sent the majority of his Iberian soldiers home to rest and refit after distributing a generous bonus to each from the spoil of Saguntum. Meanwhile, at New Carthage, Hannibal himself brought his younger brother Hasdrubal up to speed on what was to be done in Spain if Hannibal was absent, and appointed him the designated second-in-command to hold the Barcid territories against any would-be invader. When the Spanish troops returned in the early spring, Hannibal dispatched 1,200 horse and nearly 14,000 foot to North Africa to serve as garrison troops for Carthage and other cities, replacing them in Spain with 15,000 troops from Africa. Besides shoring up the local defenses, these transfers served the dual purpose of securing the loyalty of both Spaniards and Africans, who, while guarding each other's homes, also provided de facto hostages for their people's and their own good behavior. The African contingent especially exemplifies the heterogeneous nature of Carthaginian armies. Polybius reports that it consisted of 450 Liby Phoenician and Libyan cavalry, 300 Ligurtese horsemen, 1,800 Numidian light horse, 11,850 Libyan infantry, 300 Ligurians, 500 Balearic slingers, and 21 elephants. Polybius proudly reports that he obtained these exact numbers from a bronze plate which Hannibal had deposited in Italy to commemorate the troops that he had left Spain with. Even while he arranged these transfers of soldiers, Hannibal visited the ancient Punic temple of Melkart in Gades to beseech the help of the god in his coming trials. Melkart supposedly answered by sending a dream where a massive serpent devastated a landscape, foreshadowing the desolation which would come upon Italy in the coming war. Besides seeking out immortal help, Hannibal also courted that of men. Carthaginian messengers sounded out the Gallic tribes along the coasts of southern Gaul, the Alps, and northern Italy regarding their willingness to aid the Carthaginian war effort. Regardless of whether Hamilcar had impressed upon his son the necessity of an invasion of Italy, or whether the plan now occurred to him as he sat brooding in New Carthage, by 218 BC, Hannibal had fully accepted the fact that if he had any hope of decisively defeating the Romans, it must be on their own soil. The First Punic War was largely a struggle of stagnation, with neither side able to strike a penultimate blow until Rome's last desperate heave at the Agites Islands. Even with Carthage's new sources of men and money, Hannibal could not guarantee success if he fought a defensive war. 
he might beat off an invasion of Spain if the Romans sent one or both consular armies. Remember that the Romans typically only mounted two armies under each consul during their campaigning season. But that would hardly advance his own war effort. The Romans' seemingly limitless ability to conjure up men and munitions out of thin air meant that, however many consuls or legionaries might fall before him, in the end, there was a very real possibility that Hannibal could be overcome by sheer weight of numbers. Besides these concerns regarding the defense of Spain, there was the threat to the Carthaginian homeland. The invasion of Regulus was still within living memory, and the Romans had accomplished that feat when Carthage was supposedly at the height of her sea power. Now, despite orders to rebuild the fleet, Hannibal had a mere 50 quinqueremes and 5 triremes to assign to Hasdrubal for defense of the Spanish coast, and some of these lacked sufficient crews. In Carthage herself, only 55 warships could be cobbled together, bringing the total to 110. By contrast, the Romans had already ordered double that amount, 220 quinqueremes, in anticipation of the coming struggle. If Carthage was to be defended, then the war must never reach her in the first place. All these factors pointed to the necessity of Hannibal going on the offensive, and practically speaking, there was only one place he could do so, Italy. With the sea lanes closed due to Roman naval superiority, Sicily, Corsica, and Sardinia were out of the question. While assaulting Roman allies, such as the Greek trading cities in Spain or Massilia in southern Gaul, would not only antagonize cities which were currently neutral, but would also lead to no lasting advantage. No, the war must be brought to the gates of Rome herself if she was to be humbled. Unlike the defensive strategy, several circumstances weighed in favor of such an audacious stroke. For one, Italy had only recently been subjugated within living memory. Grandfathers among the Samnites, for instance, had carried arms against the Romans in the Third Samnite War in 290 BC. The rich Greek cities of southern Italy, Campania, Tarentum, and others, had only come under Roman influence following Pyrrhus' departure in the 280s BC, while the Gauls of the Po Valley in northern Italy had only been under the Roman yoke for the last seven years. Thus, however solid Rome may have looked to the outside world, upon closer inspection, cracks appeared in her seemingly monolithic hegemony. All that was required, reasoned Hannibal, was for a power to arrive which would challenge Rome's dominance, and allies from the width and breadth of Italy would flock to his banner. The reports which flowed in during the spring of 218 BC confirmed these suppositions. The Gauls were ready and eager to renew the struggle that had concluded so disastrously for them in 225 BC following the Battle of Telamon. Merchants, travelers, and at least one spy in Rome herself likely gave similar reports regarding the turbulent mountain Samnites and the wealthy Greeks of the south. Still, such an offensive move was daring to the extreme. Although Carthaginian admirals and generals had never been hesitant to launch overseas campaigns into enemy territory, none had attempted so over so great a distance against so mighty a foe. Within Hannibal's own war council, his friend Hannibal Monomachus declared that the only way the army could survive en route was to eat human flesh, 
presumably from prisoners taken. Although Hannibal Barca rejected this outright, the difficulties were great. Supply lines would be stretched to the utmost or non-existent entirely, with the army having to live off the land. Reinforcements from Spain or Carthage may be delayed or never come at all, leaving Hannibal cut off from all outside support. Along the way, several large rivers would have to be crossed, as well as the two tallest mountain ranges in Western Europe, the Pyrenees and the Alps, both of which swarmed with warlike tribes who, however friendly they might seem now with the Carthaginians far away in Spain, could well sing a different tune once they found themselves confronted with armed foreigners in their midst. And at the end of all these hurdles waited a battle-hardened, inexorable foe, the Hydra of Pyrrhus, who could summon army after army to meet any invader. Even so, after weighing his options, Hannibal knew that Italy was his only viable alternative. A war there offered all the advantages which a war in Spain and North Africa lacked. All that was required was for a master hand to execute it. In May 218 BC, Hannibal departed New Carthage on his epic quest to humble his people's greatest foe. His chosen instrument, the Army of Spain, had been selected with care. Polybius reports that it now consisted of approximately 90,000 infantry and 12,000 cavalry, significantly outnumbering the original forces Hamilcar and later Hasdrubal had possessed during their commands. Indeed, it was an impressive force by any standard, considering that it doubled the combined strength of two Roman consular armies, as well as the armies of Alexander's Diadochi to the east. Many of these troops were veterans of the hard-fought conquests of Spain, inured to hardship and warfare by constant active service. As he marched north, Hannibal would further refine his army through battles against the hostile tribes north of the Ebro who lived in northeast Spain around the Pyrenees. In a series of punishing campaigns over the next few weeks, Hannibal subdued these tribes, leaving behind a trusted lieutenant, Hanno, with 11,000 troops and the army's baggage to occupy the region. He also dismissed 10,000 disgruntled Celtiberians who had no wish to continue the war, a loss which, when combined with the casualties from the campaign and the troops left on garrison duty, left him with approximately 50,000 infantry and 9,000 cavalry when he reached the Pyrenees. Despite these reduced numbers, Polybius assures us that these soldiers, had been trained to an exceptional state of expertise by their continuous struggles in Iberia. With Spain secure, the Carthaginians crossed the Pyrenees in three marching columns and descended into Gaul sometime in August or September of 218 BC. At first, it does not seem clear why Hannibal diverted his army into northeast Spain for nearly the entire summer to combat the relatively obscure yet fierce tribes who dwelt below the Pyrenees. Even after he crossed the Pyrenees, he appeared to be in no hurry and his pace was far from exacting on his troops. However, a closer study of Rome's movements during this time explains Hannibal's intentions. In the interwar period between the First Punic War and the Second, Rome's armies had wasted no time in marching against her neighbors. Following a successful punitive expedition against the Illyrians and their pirate queen Tuata in the Balkans, 
Rome had faced down the massive Gallic invasion of 225 BC. As referenced in episode 33, this Gallic invasion had been crushed at the decisive Battle of Telamon when the consul Gaius Attilius Regulus, released from having to guard Corsica by the treaty with Hasdrubal Barca, landed on the Italian shore just in the nick of time to trap the Gauls between his own army and that of his colleague, Lucius Aemilius Papus. The Gallic host, composed mostly of tribesmen from the Insubres and Boii, as well as a formidable mercenary band known as the Gassetti, had already defeated one Roman army, pillaged the local inhabitants, and was returning to the north when the two consuls caught up with them. Polybius claims that the Gallic army numbered 50,000 infantry and 20,000 cavalry and chariots, who, when confronted by the Roman vice, formed into two columns standing back to back to defend themselves. The Gassetti, in particular, proved intimidating foes, men in the prime of life who fought completely naked to display their fearless prowess. Nonetheless, in the battle which followed, they found their nakedness a stark disadvantage when the Romans began to hurl their javelins among them, for the Gauls' small shield offered little protection from such missiles. In the end, the Romans destroyed the Gallic hosts, but with heavy losses. Regulus himself lost his life in the battle. After their victory, the Romans subdued the Boii and Insubres over the next few years, forcing them to cede large tracts of land to Roman-sponsored settlers. Hannibal was quick to tap into the lingering resentment among the Gauls over this injury. His messengers were probably more successful than he intended them to be. For the Gauls, who seldom needed encouragement to go to war, promptly revolted. Originally, the Roman plan of campaign for the Second Punic War was simple. The year's reigning consul, Publius Cornelius Scipio, was to lead one consular army numbering 22,000 infantry and 2,200 cavalry to confront Hannibal in Spain, while the other consul, Tiberius Sempronius Longus, was commissioned to lead his 27,000 men in an invasion of North Africa, along with 160 quinquiremes. Hannibal himself anticipated that the Romans would dispatch one or potentially both consular armies to attack him, and thus his delayed march through the Pyrenees and across Gaul was likely due to the fact that he was waiting to see what the Romans had planned. If he could meet a Roman army in Gaul and destroy it, he would secure Spain from assault while simultaneously opening up the road to Italy. Besides this, by holding the threat of his own army over them, Hannibal could potentially stave off the invasion of Africa by forcing the Romans to deal with him first. The Gallic Revolt threw a wrench in both the Roman and Carthaginian schemes. The army earmarked for Scipio diverted north to deal with the rebellion, and the consul had to painstakingly recruit another to replace it. This, in turn, forced Hannibal to linger along his route, waiting for Scipio to march into Gaul. Along the way, he made peace with the local Gauls, who, unnerved by the appearance of so great an army with their towering elephants, at one point threatened to make war on the Carthaginians. A well-timed distribution of gifts smoothed matters over, and the Gauls allowed the Carthaginians to march on unmolested. When news reached Hannibal that Scipio had finally set sail from Italy and was now at Massilia, modern-day Marseille in southern France, he sprung into action. His army crossed the remaining distance to the Rhone River in record time, 
But here, he found another obstacle in addition to the deep water. The Volci, a powerful pro-Roman Gallic confederation, opposed Hannibal's crossing. The stakes could not have been higher. If Hannibal failed to win a cross, he might have to abort the entire invasion and see his whole plan of campaign collapse. True to form, however, Hannibal had a plan. He sent a detachment of Spanish troops under his lieutenant, confusingly also called Hanno, this time the son of Bomacar, 25 miles upstream. Meanwhile, Hannibal ordered his men to build a large number of makeshift rafts by fitting and lashing logs together to supplement the flotilla of light ships and dugout canoes he had purchased from the local inhabitants. Hanno's troops upstream crossed the river in much the same way, although many of the Spanish troops preferred to swim across on their shields with their possessions tied on top in bundles. After resting for a day, Hanno's detachment made their way back downstream until they were behind the unsuspecting Gauls. When he reached the agreed-upon position, Hanno alerted Hannibal by a prearranged smoke signal to begin the crossing. With his cavalry loaded into the heavier vessels upstream to break up the current for the mobile light infantry who rode in canoes, Hannibal launched into the river. Seeing this audacious move, the Gauls casually marched down to the riverbank, confident that they could easily repel the Carthaginian landing. Livy gives a gripping description of the scene and what followed. The Gallic warriors came surging to the riverbank, howling and singing as their custom was, shaking their shields above their heads and brandishing their spears, in spite of the menace which confronted them of those innumerable Carthaginian craft, rendered yet more alarming by the roar of the stream and the cries of the soldiers and sailors struggling to overcome the fierce current, and the shouts of encouragement from their comrades awaiting their turn to cross. All this was bad enough, but suddenly, from behind, a more terrible sound assailed the Gauls' ears, the triumphant shout of Hanno's men. Their camp had been captured, and a moment later Hanno himself with his Spaniards were upon them. They were caught between two deadly menaces, the thousands of armed men landing on the riverbank and a second army unexpectedly pressing upon their rear. After one fruitless attempt at active resistance, the Gauls forced a way out of the trap as best they could and dispersed in confusion. Hannibal, now convinced that there was more smoke than fire in Gallic resistance, completed at leisure the passage of the river and pitched camp. As he had done at the Battle of the River Tagus, Hannibal had outsmarted his enemy by a clever use of maneuver and surprise. But he was not finished in displaying his army's ingenuity. Although he had successfully forced a way for his men and horses across, his elephants proved recalcitrant and refused to enter the river. Undeterred, the Carthaginians built a massive raft, 200 feet long by 50 feet wide, which they covered thickly with soil to make it appear like dry land. To this, the engineers attached a second, smaller raft. Securing both of these with cables to trees along the riverbank upstream, they ushered the elephants onto the raft bridge, sending the females across first so that the males would follow. The elephants, tricked by the soil beneath their feet, only became panicked when the second raft launched into the river. Most stood frozen in terror, but several fell overboard when they started jostling each other out of fear. 
These, though, easily swam on until they gained the shore, although the hapless riders who accompanied their mounts into the swirling water were not so lucky. Despite these hiccups, the elephants gained the shore in good time, and Hannibal gained a victory not only over the Gauls, but the Rhone itself. When news reached Scipio and Massilia of Hannibal's rapid crossing of the Rhone, he was shocked that his enemy, whom he had thought still cooped up in Spain, was now nearly upon him. Uncertain whether to believe these reports, Scipio dispatched 300 Roman and Gallic auxiliary horse to scout out the Carthaginian position. However, these scouts soon came upon the enemy themselves in the form of 500 Numidian horsemen. The sharp fight which followed, the first blows of the Second Punic War, foreshadowed the bloody fields to come. 160 Romans fell, while over 200 Numidians lost their lives. The victorious Romans pursued the fleeing riders until they had nearly reached the main Carthaginian camp, at which point they desisted and returned to Scipio with their report. Upon hearing that Hannibal was so close to him, Scipio immediately set out in hot pursuit. Hannibal, meanwhile, now vacillated between whether to await the consul in southern Gaul or to continue his march to the Alps. The arrival of a delegation of Gallic chieftains from northern Italy, urging him to come to their aid as soon as possible, decided him on the latter. When Scipio arrived at Hannibal's original position a few days later, he found the Carthaginian long gone. Weighing his own options, Scipio now decided that prudence was the better part of valor. The campaign season was already advanced, and there was a strong possibility that Hannibal's army would find disaster if it attempted to cross the Alps with winter setting in. So, after sending the bulk of his army under his brother Nias to continue on the original mission to Spain, Scipio returned to Italy to defend the Po Valley if Hannibal emerged from his crossing. The success of such a crossing was by no means guaranteed. Before he even reached the Alps, Hannibal's army had already dwindled from the 50,000 infantry and 9,000 cavalry he had started with to 38,000 foot and 8,000 horse. Even accounting for casualties from battle and disease, the majority of these losses were likely from desertion. Now, with the prospect of an arduous winter crossing and the seasoned Roman arms beyond, Many, even among Hannibal's veterans, hesitated. At this critical moment, Hannibal paraded the troops, and after presenting the Gallic emissaries before them who had promised them aid, rebuked the men for their hesitation and reminded them of their past victories. What sudden panic is this, Hannibal said, which has entered into those breasts where fear has never been? Year after year you have fought with me and won and you never left Spain until all the lands and peoples between the two seas were subject to our power. When the Roman people demanded the surrender of the criminal who laid siege to Saguntum, you were justly angry and crossed the Ebro, bent on obliterating the very name of Rome and setting the world free. Then, at least, none of you thought the journey long, though it stretched from the setting to the rising sun. But now, when you can see that much the greater part of the distance is already behind you, when you have made your way through the wild tribes and over the passes of the Pyrenees, when you have tamed the violence of the mighty Rome and crossed it in the face of those countless Gallic warriors who would have fain stopped you, when, finally, you have the Alps in sight and know that on the other side of them is Italian soil, 
Now, I repeat, at the very gateway of the enemy's country, you come to a halt, exhausted. What do you think the Alps are? Are they anything worse than high mountains? Say, if you will, that they are higher than the Pyrenees, but what of it? No part of earth reaches the sky. No height is insuperable to men. The envoys you see with us did not, in order to get over, soar into the air on wings. Surely then, for an army of soldiers with nothing to carry but their military gear, no waste should be too wild to cross, no hills too high to climb. Remember Saguntum, and those eight long months of toil and peril endured to the end. It is not Saguntum now, but Rome, the mightiest city in the world, you aim to conquer. How can you feel that anything, however hard, however dangerous, can make you hesitate? Why, even the Gauls once captured Rome, and you despair of being able to even get near it. Either confess, then, that you have less spirit and courage than a people you have again and again defeated during these latter days, or steel your hearts to march forward and halt only on Mars' field between the Tiber and the walls of Rome. Although the words are assuredly Livy's, the fact that Hannibal gave an inspirational speech to his dispirited troops is confirmed by Polybius, and whatever Hannibal said, it served its purpose. With reinvigorated confidence in their mission and themselves, the men agreed to march onwards. A journey of ten days brought the Carthaginians to the foothills of the fabled Alps. After successfully mediating a peaceful solution to a local civil war, Hannibal received an abundant supply of provisions and, more importantly, winter clothing to aid in his crossing. While his men rested and refitted, Hannibal, staring at the great wall of rock before him, allegedly promised, I will find a way or I will make one. In the road ahead, only his indomitable will would hold his men together for the trials which would come. Next time we will cover Hannibal's harrowing journey through the snow-covered Alps with his elephants. Until then, take care and read more history. Mm -hmm.